Theology of the Body Institute. This is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. So welcome to the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey everybody, we're back. Yep, Wendy and Christopher West are here with your questions. Very happy to receive your questions and to try to give some reflections on them. We've gotten a lot. Thank you, everybody, for sending in questions. Yes, thank you. Um, You know, this is a recorded podcast, so that means that we have very nice people who edit out our mistakes (laughs) and um, make it all sound really smooth and well put together. Mark, who does our editing, also sometimes likes to throw in a little blooper at the end. So if you've never listened through like the ending of our podcast, even past the music, you might be missing out on some funny on little bloopers. <laughs> bloopers that get thrown in there at the end. But it made me think about how often you do live events, and there's no editing no going on there. No editing when you're doing a live event, you that have is any, true. Any, in fact, maybe we could spread these out a little bit. But you Oh, know, yeah. I bloop. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you have a, a blooper that comes to mind from a, a live event situation. Yeah, I remember um, one time there were these bright lights on me, and the people were, were right at the base of, a sta- of the stage, like looking right up at me just a few feet away, and... I said some of this big wad of spits came way out, flying through the air, and it was going right towards somebody right in the front row. And the way the lights were shining, it's like the whole auditorium could see this big spit wad. (laughs) Glistening. (laughs) Glistening in the light. And then I was like, oh, no, oh, no, this is, oh, this is going to be awful. And you can (laughs) bet that it would be a distraction. So I have learned over the years that Anything that happens that could be a distraction, if you work it into the talk and you acknowledge it, uh-huh. then it like releases the tension out of the room and you can keep going. Uh-huh. So this <laughs> this little drop of spit, like, boop, right on the guy's forehead. Oh, no. And I had to say something. Oh. So what am I going to say? So I said, I said oh, I am, <laughs> I am so sorry about that spit on your face. Um, but, you know, Jesus spat on people and it healed them. <laughs> So how you doing? How you feeling? <laughs> and everybody laughed, and then we could go on with the talk. But had I not said anything Aww. about it, the rest of the talk would have everybody would have been would have been distracted by Aww. that poor guy in the front row and my spit. Oh my face. goodness! If yes. you are that guy, you know, feel free to reply to our podcast <laughs> and just say you're still out there. We appreciate it. Um, on that note, though, think about I think how intimate Jesus wants to be with us. We we. We, we often just kind of jump past those lines in, in the gospel. We just had a, a reading recently where it said Jesus s- used spittle to heal this blind guy. Mm-hmm. And he used spittle to touch this guy, a guy's tongue to make the mute be able to speak. He, you know, that kind of can creep us out or something if we're not in the right zone there. But there's an intimacy there that Jesus is inviting us to this quite remarkable. And it's the healing comes through his body. This is what we we have to remember. We are an incarnational faith. It's through our bodies, in our bodies, through the body of Christ that we experience and receive the healing we, we yearn for. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Well, Christopher, we have some questions for you. Again, and I am going to share one from a listener named Joanne, who says, as a newlywed, 
What thoughts do you have on how my husband and I can best live out the TOB message in our parish community beyond living it out in our own lives? Well, that's a great question, Joanne. How to live it out in your parish community? Well, one thing that comes to mind is just by sharing what you've learned about theology of the body. Mm -hmm. You are part of a microscopic percentage of the world's population that even knows this theology of the body exists. And it may be, you know, certainly in since I started doing this work and many others are doing this work as well, knowledge is getting out there a little bit in mm-hmm. Catholic circles that there is this thing called theology of the body from John Paul II. But my guess, my guess, Joanne, would be 95% of your parishioners do not know what theology of the body is, or if they have heard of it, they've probably mischaracterized it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of um, ideas out there that it's just this teaching on sex. It's just this teaching on, for married people. Well, it is a teaching on the glory and beauty and mystery of human sexuality and the goodness of married love, but it is not only that. It's a vision of what the gospel is. It's, it's seeing and, and understanding the gospel through the spousal imagery of the Bible. That's what theology of the body is all about. So get the word out. You could do a study course in your parish. There's, you could do the, you know, the older DVDs, the gift series from Ascension Press. You could do the, uh, the course that we offer for free. Go to askchristopherwest.com forward slash free course, and you could show that free course uh, right in your parish, you know, and in, in, in right in your home even, you know, gather some of your parishioners together and begin watching that course. Or you could do a study of Theology of the Body for Beginners or Good News About mm, Sex and Marriage, mm-hmm. any of those books you could do a guided reading with people. That would just be a way of getting the word out. So that's more formal way of spreading Theology of the Body in your parish. Uh, but just by living it, by being a couple who embraces this, mm-hmm. you become a light in your parish. you have anything to add about that, Wendy? Yeah, I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful question. I guess I'd like to affirm people's questions. Yes. I noticed that about myself. Oh, what a good question you asked. Um, but I mean it from my heart. It is beautiful. It's a beautiful desire to get beyond just your own relationship and be a light in your parish, and because we are the body of Christ, you know, and you're a beautiful member together of the body of Christ and meant to benefit the rest of the body. So I affirm that. I think it's a great desire, Um, and I totally agree with what you shared about different formal and informal ways of sharing that with others. So um, I think the Lord will put on your unique hearts a sense of needs in your parish that you can meet and incorporate TOB in the ways that you are um, meeting those needs that you are, the Lord places on your heart a desire to respond to those. So, you know, each one of us is different and there's not one way. But I also just want to do a quick little plug for something that um, may be of interest to you, which is um, the Couple to Couple League, which is a um, Catholic marriage supporting ministry, specifically teaching natural family planning, but supporting marriages in general. Um, has a new um, effort called Live the Love, where they are trying to give people resources and um, support them in sharing um, the church's vision of marriage um, 
in a parish setting, in a community setting. And so I just encourage you to look at um, their website and inquire more about Live the Love and see, you know, especially as a young couple, you just have a lot of years ahead of you to um, develop something know, really meaningful for yourself and for others in your parish. So It's a great idea, very practical. And I will throw in one final idea about how to share this with your parish. We have a parish event called Made for More, and it's a beautiful blend of presentation, live music, and art. And it's really a, a life-changing experience for those who come. If you want to learn more about bringing a Made for More event, to your parish, you can go to the uh, website, coreproject, C-O-R-project.com forward slash made for more and learn more about bringing this to your parish. We'd love to come. And we make it very, um, very doable. It's, it's a ticketed event, so it doesn't cost your parish anything. Uh, the ticket sales go to supporting the ministry and mission of spreading this around the world. So, we make it as easy as possible to to host these events. So that could be something you might want to prayerfully consider. Absolutely. Next question is from Joe, who says, even though we were well-prepared and devout Catholic, our first year of marriage has been difficult. The fact that it should be a, quote, honeymoon year is very discouraging. We feel like something is wrong with us. It seems that we are having a harder time than many couples we know. Bless you, Joe. Mm -hmm. God bless you, Joe. So I have a story to share, and I know Wendy already knows what the story is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to take you back to November of 1996. Wendy and I were celebrating our first wedding anniversary, and we were at a party. And somebody said, so hey, how's the first year of marriage been? And I said something like, well, you know, a lot of people say the first year marriage can be kind of tough, but for, for Wendy and me, it's been easy. And my dear wife, many years later, as in about probably, what, 17 years later, something Maybe. like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, were, we were recalling that story and, or that incident, and Wendy said to me, that's when I knew you were utterly clueless. <laughs> God have mercy on me. So, hey, you know, kudos to you, Joe. At least you're not clueless. (laughs) I mean, like, you just scored big. (laughs) Yeah, 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 Joe. I was trying to, I was trying to, uh, well, I was pretending that all was well. I think I did know down in there something was, was not so easy about married life. But here's the little point. You said it seems that we're having a harder time than many couples we know. So, Right there, you know, if you had been assessing Christopher and Wendy West's marriage, at, you know, you would have thought, yep, we're having a harder time than they are, yeah. because Christopher thought it was all fine, and I was just quiet. So, you know, there could be a lot of impressions you have of other couples that are... are not accurate. Accurate, right. Marriage is hard, and especially when you're, you're, you're bringing two cultures together. Mm-hmm. That first year is culture clash. Yeah. From, you know, how you arrange the furniture or the silverware in the kitchen or or what you're putting on the table to eat to your sleeping habits, your bathroom habits. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I remember another funny thing from our early marriage. We struggled with the sheets on the bed. Oh, we just we had did. a double bed. So there wasn't a lot of personal space in that bed. It was pretty narrow. 
And um, Christopher likes the sheets untucked. He needs free air movement. He needs to just rearrange things. And I like sheets tucked in. So this very small bed didn't really afford both options. And, And Christopher proposed that we cut the sheets I don't even remember, you remember this. this? No. <laughs> Down the middle at the foot of the bed and like, you know, cut so that one half could be tucked in and one half could be Did we do untucked. that? You know, for some reason, which is me, we didn't because in my mind somehow that was just wrong. You just uh-huh. don't, you don't cut, cut the sheets. sheets. They shouldn't be cut. You know, now looking back on it, I think, why didn't we? Like, <laughs> who cares if the sheets are cut if it makes it work better for us but you know I, I was being kind of difficult myself and refusing to go along with that creative solution you came up with but it's just another example of yes some of that difficulty. culture clash mm-hmm. culture clash joe i i would encourage you if you if you are feeling the tension if you're feeling struggles it doesn't necessarily mean something is going wrong with your marriage it very well may mean something is going right there is a, a journey of purification in married life where we are learning to love one another that is difficult. And our selfish habits are kind of one-man show habits or one-woman show habits, which we acquire in our single years. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of dying to that. Yeah. And that's not easy. But I would also say, Joe... If you commit yourself to learning that way of dying to your selfishness, learning how to patiently bear with your own imperfections and your wife, your wife's, the rewards of that commitment are truly rich. There are certain things that come from embracing the trials of love that you cannot learn unless you really embrace those trials. A lot of people, you know, they give up on one another when it gets really, really tough. And the image that comes to me is like the guy in the desert who's crawling, crawling, looking for an oasis, and he gives up the fight right Mm. on the hill, right? When on the other side of that hill, there's the oasis, There is a real Passover, and it's the Christian Passover. It's the Christian life of dying to rise. It's the Good Friday experience that leads to the Easter Sunday experience. And if you're right in the phase of going through a purification and you're starting to feel those nails or you're starting to feel that crown of thorns getting pushed in and you're like, forget this, well, you're throwing in the towel right before you're you're about to make the Passover into Mm. something glorious. Mm Mm-hmm. There is a constant dying and rising in the journey of the Christian life. And embracing that becomes the source of great, great joy. And looking back at, we're going on 24 years of married life now. We were married in 95. Looking back at that, you begin to see the pattern of, oh, yes, yes, yes. I I remember how difficult that was, but now I see the fruit of it. And that Mm -hmm. helps us. In the here and now, when we're right. facing a trial, to say no, we can embrace this because we know there's something good on the other side of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think you know a lot of what you said, um, Joe, in your question was that talking about being discouraged, um, wishing that you were having a more of a honeymoon experience in your early marriage, and I think 
you know, that just certainly reveals a certain expectation that you and your wife may have had about what it would be like to be married. And there's something beautiful about the mm-hmm. hope of having, you know, a lot of happiness together. Um, but I think sometimes one of the difficulties is that we didn't realize all that we were expecting until it doesn't happen. You know, yeah. there and there's, I think, a lot in the early stage of relationship that's difficult is the the self-knowledge that you're having to gain about what you were expecting you know that maybe was not conscious until it becomes conscious when it doesn't happen and all right i'm gonna make myself vulnerable here go ahead uh, by um asking you wendy what was something that you were expecting uh, about married life that didn't pan out well, I think, you know, an obvious one that we've sh- talked about before would certainly be that without consciously knowing it, I just expected that whatever food I made would be, you know, fine. I didn't know that, you know, we have like these different tastes and expectations about cooking that we're bringing into marriage. Now, I know that sounds really ignorant, and I, I'll just say I was only 23 years old and I was probably a little immature for 23, but really it was a surprise to me because I didn't even know that I expected that, you know, I didn't even acknowledge that I actually had a lot to learn about cooking, you know, and that it seemed like, you know, an offense to me somehow, a rejection instead Mm -hmm. of just a normal experience. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's normal. You know, we have different expectations and we have our whole lives to be learning things. Why would I expect to know it all at 23? But Looking back, I can see it, but at the time, I just thought, of course, you know, I'll be the wife and I'll cook, and you know, even that expectation sounds silly, but it was mine, you know, and and it'll be fine. And it wasn't always, and that was that was hard for me. Should we tell the the good bread story? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also part part of it was my own arrogance that I came into the marriage with. I just thought you know, to go with that food thing. And you can apply it to all kinds of things in married life when the cultures, the two cultures are coming together. But I had, I had this, I didn't realize it was an arrogance, but just a sense of an expectation. This is the way it will be. This is, and I, and this is the story, the good bread story exemplifies this. I, Wendy was headed off to the grocery store. This is what, within the first few months, right? First, maybe a few weeks. I don't know. Anyway, it was early in our married life, and Wendy was going to the grocery store, and I said, hey, could you get some good bread? And in my family, good bread had a very specific definition. It was, it was like a baguette that had a crusty outside and a soft inside. And, and in my arrogance, I just thought every, that the world knows what good, everybody knows what <laughs> good bread that was is, self-explanatory. right? It's self-explanatory. Uh-huh. Could you get some good bread? Well, that was very different for you. Yeah. What well, good bread for you meant... Yeah, plus sort of, I don't know, like nutritious bread, or I actually didn't know for sure what you meant, but, you know, certainly I never conceived of any kind of white bread as being good bread. It came from a health background, you know, and that was sort of like unhealthy. So why would you call that yeah. good, you know? But that was a, just a different perspective I was bringing. And you show, I think you bought some Roman meal or something, some some wheat bread or... I don't remember that, that part. That was it. like sliced, you know, in a, yeah. in a bag. And, and to me, that was... It was just a cultural difference that was not to me what we always called good bread, but it became a it, because of my arrogance. <laughs> uh, I'll I will admit that it became a source of 
um, yeah, there's there's pain involved in learning how to come together in in ways that we just didn't didn't know would would be there. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a need, I think, to when we realized that we were expecting something and it didn't happen, and we have emotions in response to that disappointment or anger, um, that we are open to just accepting ourselves that we, you know, there's nothing wrong with those feelings and that we can share them with the Lord who also experienced disappointment uh, and people let him down. So he's, he's not uh, any stranger to our experience, but that we can acknowledge it to him and just ask him to stretch us and help us to accept the person we've married and accept ourselves and, and move forward together and, you know, not to dwell in those kinds of feelings unnecessarily long, not to deny them, but just to allow them to move us forward in our relationship. And just as to give you to give you hope, Joe, I will say this: these issues do get worked out. I love your cooking, Wendy. Oh, thank I love you. Love it. <laughs> it is just delight to me. It is hominess to me. In fact, we were just talking about this the other day for some reason. How uh, you know you grow up, and my mom's cooking was my home cooking, but now, without a doubt, Wendy, your cooking is my home cooking. It mm-hmm. is just yeah. So these things do get worked out. <laughs> I love your cooking. Thank you, my love. <laughs> and blessings to Joe and your wife. Bless you, Joe, and bless your dear wife. Keep going, brother. Keep going. So we have a question that was submitted anonymously. Um, that refers back to a question that we um, responded to. I think it was in our third podcast. So um, the question says, in your last podcast, which I actually think is the third one, you talked about how married couples can still be physically intimate, yet abstain from sexual acts during times of fertility. So this was a topic in in Mm -hmm. response to a question um, in a previous podcast. So this question is, if the argument of temptation is off the table, how would you then suggest a couple who isn't yet married go about deciding where to draw the line physically in their dating relationship? I'm not sure I'm following the, if the question of temptation is off the table, what, is, what do you think she's getting at there? Or the person, whoever yeah, it is, um, he or she? Yeah, the way I'm taking it is beyond just asking whether you'd be tempted to do something that is clearly morally wrong, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if that's not the issue, what then are boundaries for your intimacy in a dating relationship? Are, is this an engaged couple, do we know? It just, it's says, just, a, it just says dating. A dating relationship. Okay, so I would invite you to consider looking at Good News About Sex and Marriage, Chapter 4, for more detail where I get into probably 10 or 15 specific questions about premarital chastity, chastity for a dating couple and mm-hmm. for an engaged couple. And this is a book that um, yes. you wrote and actually re-released recently in yes, an updated, updated version. Yeah. So you, you can get actually you can get a free copy uh, at coreproject.com. Go to the shop there and we'll send it to you for free if you're willing to just pay for the shipping. But here, here are some reflections. So chastity comes from the heart. What does the word chastity even mean? The word chastity, John Paul II says, needs to be rehabilitated because we have this very negative, uh, wrong-headed idea of chastity when we reduce it to an oppressive list of rules to follow. 
Chastity, the word chastus or castus in Latin, uh, just means pure. And so here's an analogy. If I had gold that was riddled with impurities, would you want that or would you want pure gold? Clearly, we would want pure gold. Mm. But somehow we get this idea that the pure experience of sexuality is somehow boring or not uh, exciting, Mm kind of dull or plastic. This is so, so wrong. I love love this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, chastity is a flaming thing like Joan of Arc. Oh, man, what an Mm. image. It's a flaming thing. In other words, chastity is the virtue that orders our sexual desires towards the truth of love, which is to say the truth of affirming the goodness of the other person and not not wanting to treat the other person as an object. Mm -hmm. I often tell this story, it's a story from our relationship, I've told it many, many times to audiences where when I was a teenager, this was before, obviously before you and I met Wendy, but uh, when I was a teenager, I was in this relationship and and chastity to me meant, when I was in this dating relationship as a teenager, just grinning and bearing it, kind of white knuckles, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, guess what? I really want to do that, so I'm going to break the rules because you can only hold your breath for so long until you, you got to take in some air. That's what I thought chastity was, like holding your breath. Mm. That was brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I ended up breaking all the rules and indulging, but then I experienced firsthand the real heartache and pain of that Mm -hmm. and it started me on a journey of saying there's got to be more to this chastity thing the real call of chastity is freedom free true sexual freedom so our culture talks a big line about sexual freedom but the culture means do whatever you want whenever you want without ever saying no i lived that and it made me miserable I got to the point where I could not, I was so out of control in my own passions and desires that uh, I became a manipulator. When I was with my girlfriend, I knew how to push her buttons to get what I wanted. And and I felt really guilty about it. So one year it was Lent and I asked my girlfriend if she, if she thought we should give up sex for Lent and, and she agreed, but I only lasted like three days. I was in chains. I realized then I am not free. I am in chains. What the culture was promoting as sexual freedom was actually actually sexual slavery. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, without ever saying no. You know, is, is an alcoholic who cannot say no to the bottle, is this person free? No, he's in chains. So long story short, when that relationship ended, I started studying theology of the body, and I not just studying it, but really letting it into my heart mm-hmm. to rearrange the furniture. Mm. And I was, I was learning for the first time in my life a new kind of freedom, where I didn't want to use other people. I didn't want to be used, nor did I want to use, because I knew the damage that it caused. And this is the story about us, Wendy, that I, I often tell. You'll remember it well when yeah. we were newly dating and uh, actually, I th- I'd like to hear your version of it because I tell it all the time. Do you, you, you know the story I'm talking about at Holtwood Pinnacle when, when I said... Uh, well, I think we were, we were in a very beautiful spot, which for a dating couple who were very excited about our relationship and what was God 
doing and opening our hearts to one another and just a feeling of great excitement. And we were at this beautiful nature spot of a overlook over the Susquehanna River. And we were sitting on this rock with no one around, you know, just kind of alone, surrounded by natural beauty and excitement over one another. So I think, in a sense, a very romantic setting. It was indeed. And um, there was just a, a feeling that you were particularly experiencing, I think, in contrast to past experiences um, that just welled up in you. And I remember you saying, I'm free. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you could share more about what you're feeling. I didn't want to, I felt, I I did. I had a, just this desire to bless and affirm you. I didn't want to use you. I didn't want to push your buttons to get something out Mm. of you. And that for me was, was liberation. That was mm-hmm. absolute exhilarating liberation to not want to use you. Mm-hmm. It was a new experience for me. And and I knew I knew in my experience then that chastity is liberating. Mm. Uh, so so all of that is a precursor to any kind of answer to your question that Chastity is something beautifully liberating. It frees our sexual desires from the utilitarian attitude. That's a quote right out of John Paul II's Love and Responsibility. Chastity frees us from the utilitarian attitude and enables us to love. Only when we understand that as the foundation of chastity can we then talk about specific questions. Otherwise, you might have specific questions that you're giving specific answers to with the wrong foundation, and it just becomes legalism. Right. So can you read that question again? Yeah, there's something I want to share. Yeah. It's all, partly from the question, partly my memory of some things that we said in the previous podcast. Uh-huh. One of the points that I remember making in that podcast was that the church doesn't teach that arousal always has to lead to intercourse. Yes. And that, you know, I was saying it, in specifically responding to a married person's question, but I I wonder if that kind of has triggered some of this question. Ah, uh, uh, that's okay, making sense. Sure. You know, if it's okay to be aroused, well, what is and what isn't okay? And I, you know, I certainly think we need to, as you know, you're sharing about freedom and liberation. There's a huge distinction between a married couple yes. who have promised to give them their whole selves to one another. Their physical bodies to one another, the intimacy that goes with that, the nakedness that goes with that, that is utterly expressive of their marriage. Yes. And times of abstinence don't have to exclude any of those expressions of being married and given to one another, but it would be obviously an untruth for unmarried people to say, well, as long as we don't have intercourse or break that rule, yes, yes, yes. then any level of arousing behavior is okay. So. Yes, correct. There are very, very important distinctions here between a married couple and a dating couple. And and even there are some nuances for an engaged couple that would be different than just a, a newly dating couple. But I, I wanted to, I'm reminded of a funny story that is worth repeating. And it's mm-hmm. not just humorous, but it, it has a point too. A priest told me this story years ago. I was giving a talk to men and uh, I had told a, some kind of joke just to lighten the mood, and and the priest was chimed in with a story of his own. He said <laughs> he was giving a, a talk to a bunch of young people about a room of 500 people at a conference, and they were asking very honest questions about dating and, and sexual 
choices. And, and this guy got up to the microphone and said, Father, uh, what do I do when I'm on a date with a woman and I'm just getting aroused just being in her presence? Like, there I am, I'm on this date and I'm getting an erection and, and she's not even doing anything. She's just looking at me and she's beautiful and there I have an erection. What am I supposed to do uh, about this? Uh. And the priest, without realizing how it sounded, he said to a room of 500 young people, he said, well, I think in those situations, the best thing is just to bring it out in the open. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, The whole room erupted in laughter, and the priest still didn't quite realize what he had said. But his point is, is, is that honesty with yourself, first and foremost... Uh, if you're a dating couple and you're putting yourself in circumstances where you're getting, you know, tormentedly aroused, then then please don't put yourself in those situations. But even in the normal course of things, I remember being on a phone call with you when we were dating, and I was getting aroused just because I was talking to you. Mm. Should I try to, you know, shut that down? Should I try to repress that? No, I should open that up as a as a prayer, as strange as that might sound to some people, when our body is being aroused, you could look at it cynically and say, well, that's just your fallen, broken, lustful humanity. And it may be partly that. But it also, what is God's original plan for arousal? It's a sign that I am called to be a gift. Mm -hmm. And I remember working through that in our dating relationship when I would be aroused, just talking to you on the telephone, Mm realizing this is a sign. This is a sign. My body is designed to be a gift. And, and there, you could channel that in, in the direction of self-indulgence, which would be very wrong, or you could channel that in the direction of learning to be a gift. How do I put this desire at the service of being a gift? And as a dating couple, that will mean learning how to say no to the desire of indulging in the arousal, but the arousal itself is not wrong. The arousal itself can be integrated with personal self-giving, and that is the liberation of chastity. And that is awesome. Yeah. We're going to leave it at there because we are out of time. We love your questions, everybody. Keep them coming. Go to askchristopherwest.com to give us any of your questions. Please leave a review there. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And please share our show. If you're benefiting from listening to the Ask Christopher West podcast, please you know, click that little share icon on your smartphone or on your computer and or your tablet or whatever you're listening to us on and share it with somebody who needs to hear this podcast today. We love you guys. Until next time, God bless you. God bless you. Take care. The Ask Christopher West podcast comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Mark, who does our editing, also sometimes likes to throw in a little blooper at the end. And that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs>